Well, if, uh, if you're joining us uh, without being here last week, we started a fresh series on the book of Ephesians. And the, the book of Ephesians um, is one, if I give you like a brief, a brief summary, it's only got six chapters. And the Apostle Paul wrote this book uh, to the, the only church he actually wrote a letter to where the church didn't have one negative criticism or issue within the church. All the other churches had at least one kind of like thing that, that Paul had to kind of address. Not so with Ephesians. So as you read that, we've been challenging you guys to read it at least once a week um, over the course of this month as we, as we dive into Ephesians. Realize that this, this church, it wasn't perfect, but essentially Paul's, uh, his, his attitude towards it was their hearts were pure, their leadership was good, the direction they were going was sound. And the thing that comes out of that book, perhaps more than any other, is the, the direction of their maturity. A watchman Ni, who was a Chinese missionary and theologian, he wrote a whole bunch of books, and he started a whole bunch of churches. And uh, if you haven't read his book, uh, or any of his books, you need to. He's, he spent the last 20 years of his life in, in prison, persecuted. And he said, uh, he, said, he said this about Ephesians. He summarized it with three things. Sit, walk, and stand. Sit, walk, and stand. Essentially this, in chapters 1 to 3, Paul tells us the importance of being seated to sit and to be with Jesus. And he said that's actually the most critical thing if you're ever going to learn to walk as a follower of Jesus. You first have to learn to be with him, to sit with him. And so chapters 4 to 6 are then a, a, an impetus on walking as followers of Jesus. As children of light, we go from sitting to walking out good works, not under striving, but as the very artwork of God, shining his brilliance to all creation. And then finally, chapter, chapter 6 ends with this whole thing with standing, that we have to stand against the, the enemy in power. So we then need to take a stand in God's strength and power against the enemy, which means we should ask the question, doesn't Jesus protect me? And the answer is yes, but it involves kind of an active standing. He doesn't call us to stand and then just not be engaged. We're co-laborers is the biblical term, and therefore he gives us armor, not just to be passive and, and to, to be on the defensive, but to also be on the offensive and to be engaged co-laborers with him to bring heaven to earth. So that's the summary of Ephesians. Sit, walk, and stand. And so today we're going to be looking at this first reality with my lovely wife tag-teaming some things with us. I hope you guys enjoy when we do this together. It is a labor of love. <laughs> Thank you for those golf claps. Um, <laughs> <laughs> we, we always have, it's just kind of a, it's hilarious as we prepare. It's always like an utter mess in our preparation, and we both kind of have our ideas, and then we, we kind of talk about it, and uh, it kind of figures itself out. So, so we, we, we want to start with this concept of, of looking at sitting. And if you get one phrase into your spirit this morning, it's that the Holy Spirit wants you to know that you sometimes just need to sit down. Sit down and receive. And the problem we have is that society is in this kind of identity crisis. And I, I found this uh, interesting article on psychcentral.com that was titled, Depression's Secret Plan for Your Identity. 
So we're going to focus on two things today, identity and inheritance. And the, the issue of identity is really interesting. It's not just a biblical concept. It's a human concept. And what I found amazing was that if, if you just kind of read down through this article, I'm not going to obviously read the whole thing, just some highlights. It, 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 almost, is a, it, it almost feels like you're reading a devotional on how to attack the, the, the weight of depression in someone's life. And this guy Aaron Pollard says this, uh, we've all come to know the experience of the blues, being down, heartbreak, disappointment, and sadness, or what some might even call depression. All too often, the worst part of the experience isn't even the sadness or the bad feelings themselves, but rather the way sadness is able to change the way we see ourselves, our past, our hope, and that hope for the future. Depression may try to convince you that it holds the true assessment of your personality, your weaknesses, and your limitations. And he says, but before you become completely convinced by depression, there are six important things you need to know. And, and I thought it was interesting. Depression may try to convince you. In other words, he's almost speaking of depression like a voice, like a spirit. He doesn't even have to call it out to point out the reality that there's a voice, that humanity is more than naturally tempted to listen to. And he says, number one, depression enters your life. Its main goal is to impact your identity. Your identity is what is most meaningful to you, your talents, your character, what makes you uniquely you. Depression knows that this is the key to taking away the most hope. Again, he's talking about depression like a spirit. Depression knows that this is the key to taking away the most hope and happiness from your life and keeping you under its thumb. Simply ruining your mood isn't enough for depression. It aims to shake the core of how you see yourself, identity. Secondly, depression is a master manipulator. It may even go as far as to say that your friends don't really care about you and that you are totally alone. Number three, depression doesn't play fair. Its agenda is to twist every experience into evidence that you are fatally flawed and to get you to question what you know to be a value about yourself. Why do you think we keep emphasizing how God sees you? How he sees the gold inside of you and how our role as families to call out the gold in every single human being. Depression doesn't play fair. Try to spot your depression goggles, he says in number four. Or the lens you see yourself in the world, we might say. Viewed through depression goggles, everything just looks worse, even hopeless. Start trying to notice when depression is attempting to take, you, to take over your mood your view of yourself, or is attempting to re-edit your life, your life story, your destiny. It takes some practice to spot it, but it can be done. Number, oh, sorry, one other thing he says. This was interesting advice. Try to find even that tiny part of you that doesn't entirely agree with depression's conclusions about you. In other words, try to find that little voice that's speaking truth, that voice of the Father, the Good Shepherd's voice, and it may be much more quiet than the current voice of the accuser, of that depression, of that loud voice in your head. But try to find that even that smidge of truth and agreement. And he says, if I asked people, the special people in their life, what they value most about you, or what they chose 
he, he essentially asked, if, if I was going to ask you the special people that are in your life, that, that, when, that when you say, I value most about these people and the relationship with them uh, and, and what they did and what was important, what would they say? And he said, visiting with, speaking with, or even just thinking about how these special people would answer questions about who you are as an individual. He says, it helps to keep that spark alive and even start to give it a bit of more impact on your mood, yourself, and your life story. In other words, they have no, they have no grid for having a good heavenly father that sees you, knows you, and speaks life, purpose, and destiny over you. But they understand that other human beings that do speak life over you, Fill yourself on those things. It's almost like craving for a family that knows how to call out your destiny when you don't believe it. It's amazing. And number five, there's six of them. Number five is try your best to listen to that tiny part of you instead of the depression. Maybe keeping a photo of that favorite aunt who's always, who always saw the best in you or journaling about the decisions you've made in your life and why you stand by them will help tip the scales in your favor and keep depression away. You could even write inspirational words on your mirror and lipstick. It's like, why doesn't he just say, write little Bible verses on little three-by-five cards and stick them all over your house like my Sunday school teacher, Mrs. Henson, did in second grade. It's, it's, it's the same thing. We're wired to remind ourselves of promises. This isn't even based on anything but what your aunt says about you. What if our truth was that your heavenly father, the creator of all creation, is speaking life over you. That's our message. And if your aunt is doing it too, fantastic. She can join. She can join the parade. And number six, no one but you can decide the meaning of your life and the value of your identity. That's an interesting one. That's the final one. And it's kind of in some ways a little bit sobering. No one but you can decide the meaning of your life and the value of your identity. And I thought about that for a little bit. And I think at the heart of that statement is the reality that God pursues but you do have to surrender to that voice. You do have to find agreement. Your agreement is incredibly powerful. Whenever you agree with a lie, you empower the liar. But when you agree with truth, you empower that truth. And the Father's invitation is for you to come into agreement with what heaven is saying about you. Identity. It's amazing. Okay, so getting back into Ephesians. The, the main things that the first couple chapters are getting at are these questions. We don't know who we are. That's the identity issue. And because we don't know who we are, we don't access what we have. That's our inheritance. So because of not knowing who we are, we don't know how to access what we have. Is this where I was going to have you tell your little thing? Not yet. Okay. Let me set her up. So where is your identity? And if you want one phrase in your mind, your identity inherits your destiny. Identity inherits destiny. The direction of your life will have no direction without identity. And the inheritance that is disposable to you from heaven cannot be given to you without you fully agreeing with who you are. Identity inherits destiny. So where is your identity. So we have this struggle in all of life. We have this struggle to find identity in all kinds of things. People find their identity in careers, in family, in appearance, in status, in hobbies, in politics. I saw a really, uh, I don't know if I, sh I shared this, one of my favorite little memes was that a uh, CrossFitter 
You know CrossFit? Anyone know a CrossFitter? Yeah, see how you, yeah, yeah, oh, I know them, because they talk about it all the time. Yeah, sorry, Scott, where's Scott? I love CrossFit. A CrossFitter, a vegan, and an atheist, they walk into a pub. I know this because they told everyone within five minutes. That was the little meme. So, so the idea is that those, those entities, people kind of know, if you're a vegan, you kind of make your identity around it. If you're an atheist, your identity, your belief system. Crossfitter, you can, all, you can make your identity about that as well. I think Christians should kind of be known that way. Sometimes we're not. Our identity are kind of be known for Christians, but not in good ways. But it is completely normal for your, your belief system, your, the way that you operate in all of life. Your faith should establish something of your identity, right? Yeah, so... Uh, Key verses in in the first couple chapters. Uh, Verse 4 and 5 of chapter 1 says this. Even before he made the world, God loved us and chose us in Christ to be holy and without fault in his eyes. God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Jesus. And in verse 10 lands on this reality that in this is the plan. At the right time, he will bring everything together. Say everything. 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 Under the authority of Jesus, everything in heaven and on earth. And so this adoption plan of God's towards you and I, it has this reality that he chose us, that he showed us unconditional love, that he made us royal in our identity. He adopted us and and made our bloodline now going from a place of pauperhood or servanthood or poverty to a one of a royal bloodline that has absolute purpose, influence, and goodness in every way, shape, and form. There's no royal inheritance without royal identity. You are God's very own child and in God's very own family with full benefits and thus full inheritance. And receiving is so much easier when you actually believe who you are. And now my lovely wife is going to share a little bit about that reality of yes. heaven on earth. So Christian said something that I think we, I really want to nail home. He said, your identity inherits your destiny. So something, identity, it's really like the foundation of everything we do, everything we believe, how we live, how we act. And yet so often it's so easily put off kilter. Like say you are, have a great job. You're doing well, your family's happy. All of a sudden you lose your job and you're not sure how you're gonna get ends meet onto the table. It's like, well, who am I? What am I doing with my life? You're the same person with the great job as when you lost the job. Like nothing has shifted. But that identity, it's so easily in today's world can be knocked off who God says we are. And so um, this I'm adding in. It's not even really part of our notes. But there was this great example that happened in kids ministry thanks to Richard Brutzi's son, Uriah. So I was asking the kids when I was teaching have you guys met Jesus yet? Who in here is a Christian? And some of the older kids were like, yeah, I'm a Christian. My son was like, I'm a Christian, and my first name's Christian. And another kid was like, I'm a Christian. And Uriah was standing there like a statue, hands down. I was like, Uriah, I know your faith. Like, you talk to me about God more than I talk to you about God. I know, Uriah, you're a Christian. He goes, no, I'm not. (laughs) I was like, Uriah, you, you are a Christian. He's like, no, I'm not. I was like, finally, the third time, Uriah, you are a Christian. He's like, no, I'm not. I'm a Brutzi. And I was like, yes, Uriah, you are a Brutzi. But that, 
picture of like how he grasped his identity, without a doubt, your son is a brutzy. <laughs> but the Lord spoke to me. He's like, do you see how he gets that? That's how you need to get who you are in me. Yeah. And so you're, um, I'm going to now go into, but that was kind of, so this whole thing of destiny being linked to our identity. Your identity inherits your destiny. And if our destiny is ultimately heaven, it's our response, that's our destiny where we're going. But how do we live now? Our responsibility is to bring heaven to earth. So I'm always asking questions. I'm like, okay, God, how? How do we do that? And he took me, actually, I'm going to walk you through kind of my experience I had a few weeks ago. But ultimately, the plumb line of the experience was by believing who you are, partnering with faith, which will unlock our inheritance. So when I was, um, I don't know, a couple weeks ago, going for a jog, and I was struggling with a mindset. And I could tell you guys the mindset, but the Holy Spirit was like, that narrows it to you. Let's open it to everyone. And I was like, I have freedom in this mindset, freedom in this mindset, freedom in this, but I can't seem to get past this one. And the Holy Spirit spoke to me, and he said, daughter, your faith has made you well. And that's out of Mark 24, at chapter Mark, verse 24. And he's like, break it down. Daughter, that's your identity. Your faith that unlocks your wellness. So it was like this aspect of inheritance could only be unlocked when we appropriated faith about what we believed, of what he said about who we are. And it was beautiful when Jesus said that the scripture is talking about when the woman touched the hem of his garment who had been bleeding for 12 years. So him saying darter to her, she had been ostracized from her family. Every time she went outside, she had to shout, unclean, unclean. Like literally had a radius around here where people couldn't enter into it. And so she had not known family for 12 years. So in that moment, he restored her identity and said, daughter. And then he said, your faith has made you well. But the interesting thing about that is we know Jesus died on the cross, his inheritance, he's given us everything. It's been paid in full. But at that moment, Jesus was still alive. So her faith tapped into a present tense reality where he stopped and said, who touched me? And the disciples were like, a million people, not a million, there weren't a million people. Dozens of people could have touched you. There's people all around you, Jesus. And he's like, no, I felt the power leave my body. And so what her hunger drew upon was a future, a present tense, or a future reality drawing it into the present tense. So what our faith is, is it's imagine you've inherited a huge ranch. And the ranch kind of has like rolling hills. And you drive up, and it's sort of the flat part of the ranch. And you look at it, you're like, oh, this is nice. I have a lot of cows, land, house, everything. And then you don't know, but you go up to the top of a hill. And you look down. You get a vantage point of, oh, all of this is mine, not just the cows. There's sheep over there, and this looks like it goes on for miles and miles, and that's what faith does. When we grasp our identity, we believe it in faith, it shows us the inheritance that's available for us to walk into. So really today, my heart is to stir you up to be like, I still got time left. Like, I'm still here. I have all this time, and I want to let faith explore what I never realized was in my life for me. So faith ultimately explores the territory that you've inherited. The Bible says, by faith we understand. So we don't have faith because we understand. 
We have understanding because we have faith. I'm going to say that again because it took my mind. I was like, oh, this is so good, but I had to take a while to wrap around it. We don't have faith because we understand. We have understanding because we have faith. So I love that. Identity paired with faith unlocks what is already yours, your inheritance. And going back to daughter, that's identity. Your faith, that's the activation, has made you well. Inheritance, the future reality brought into the present tense. And our dream for Frontier is that we would be bringing the future into the present, into the now, his kingdom here. Good. Yeah, so that first point, where is your identity? Point two, sit down and receive. That's it. Just like her. (laughs) Verse uh, 6 of chapter 2 says, For he raised us from the dead along with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly, heavenly realms because we're united with Christ Jesus. Seated us with him. That was the key. That's, that's where you're at. The, the people of Ephesus were a completely spiritualized, obsessed with magic and the occult and those types of things. They had no problem seeing and realizing that the, the spiritual realm was just as real as the physical realm. And in fact, they interacted on a very real level. And so when Paul talks about this heavenly realm, he isn't talking about this place that you go He's talking about the place that you spiritually abide in that taps into your real reality, your physical reality now. And so when he says that you are seated with Christ in the heavenly realms, they receive that. And the way we should receive that is that that is now. We don't wait for it. And it supersedes everything in the physical. And we should expect it to transform the way we live in the physical. Can someone say amen? Amen. Amen. Okay. Watchman Nee said this, Christianity does not begin with walking. It begins with sitting. We are invited at the very outset to sit down and enjoy what God has done for us. So sit down. Enjoy what he's already done. Stop striving. Stop striving. Sit down and receive. Just sit down. Okay. So... What do you struggle to believe about your identity? Because I believe that the reason why many of us keep striving is because we still struggle with our identity. It's a a constant thing that we have to manage. If you feel guilt and shame about having to manage this, it's completely okay. It's completely okay. But it's not okay to do nothing about it. Because you will live in torment if you take the posture that there's nothing you can do. We are meant to be a people that pursue the fullness of our identity because at the other end of the fullness of your identity is the fullness of your inheritance. (laughs) That, That series we did on Sabbath, I think, ties into this so beautifully because at the heart of Sabbath is this continual recognizing that it's more important for me to stop, to give thanks, to worship, to receive his presence. And that place of strength better equips me to accomplish the purposes of which I am on the planet for anyway. And it's an act of worship where I testify to all those in my family, in my home, and in my work, or in my influence, that this is the rhythm of my life. This is what my core conviction is. And when I don't feel it, when my identity is being 
feeling like it's in the midst of an onslaught. What I have is this place where I actively engage in rest as a declaration of worship to who is in charge over my life. There is so much power in attacking depression and striving, in actively resting by worshiping through Sabbath. And I believe that that's what the whole point is. Sit. This happened at the beginning of creation to set the tone of all the good works that they were to carry out as human beings co-laboring with God. First, sit down. Abide. Rest. Receive. When you get that, when you understand who you are, that it's not by striving, it's not by work, it's not by obeying the law, then, then your work can actually have an effect. All your work that isn't done out of that place is actually tainted. Have you ever felt that? Have you ever felt something that it's like, this thing that I'm striving at, there is some good attached to it, but it feels like I'm constantly, it's, it's almost like it's nowhere as good as it should be because I knew it came out of a place in my spirit that wasn't as good as it could have been. That's the issue of rest. On a, on a real practical basis, I feel like when I'm not present, that's an issue of rest in my life. When I'm not present with my family, and not present with my kids, I'm not even present with one of you if we're at a coffee or something and I'm distracted. The, the distraction is, is that I have a mindset that is striving where I can't fully be in front of you. My confidence is shot because I feel like I'm supposed to be doing something else. I can't be in the moment. I can't bring in the moment all of heaven on earth that I'm supposed to bring because in that moment I'm feeling a, a version, a version of guilt, shame, or depression distraction in who I am and what I haven't done or what I need to get to that isn't allowing me to be fully there right now. And when you force yourself to rest with God actively, you are taking that spirit, that voice, and you are inviting the Holy Spirit to be the louder voice. Just sit down. Watchman Nee also says this, it is grief to the heart of God when we try to provide things for him. He is so very, very rich. Hear it in his Chinese accent. It's amazing. I read thinking of his voice. It's a grief to the heart of God when we try to provide things for him. He is so very, very rich. It gives him true joy when we just let him give and give and give again to us. It is a grief to him too when we try to do things for him, for he is so very, very able he longs that we will just let him do and do and do. The longer you sit, the harder it is to get up. Uh, and an illustration really quickly and move on to the next point. Uh, how many of you just can collapse on the couch when you've allowed yourself to kind of do that? And then it's like to get up from that couch is like over my dead body will I get up from this couch. <laughs> so, so like, I didn't... 90 to 99.9% .9 of the time, as soon as I sit down, Sue thinks of something that she needs me to get. Does that happen to anyone else? 99.9% of the time, you don't get it. You're like, I'm already sitting down. Why would I get up? <laughs> Just and, to bring full circle. And what I've learned, and, and, and the way I've matured in that, is instead of saying, uh, no, honey, can you get that? I say, Finn. <laughs> That's true. True if story. If you can't hear true me, story. Judah. 
Yes. And if he so, can't hear you, Eloise. That's why we have four kids. I've got four options every time I sit down. And, and so, but, but how, how many of you know, it's like, it's, it's I'll use, even last night, I, I remember I, I sat down and she asked me something, I, I just sat down. And it was actually not about sitting down, it was about like, I had just sat down and got all my notes and stuff in the right place so I could, you know, focus. And so it was more about that. But, but how many times though, you, you sit down, maybe you're watching, you know, a movie or something, you get halfway in and your body is like completely like immersed and settled. And so, like, even going to the bathroom and pressing pause is just like, like, oh, that's, I, 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 hold, I hold my pee for, like, hours on end because I'm, like, I'm settled. I don't, I can press pause, and I'm, I'm too, like, immersed to do that. But the, the longer you sit, the harder it is to get up, right? The, the longer you sit and engage, the harder it is to get up. You know, that's actually a good thing. When you're sitting in the presence of God, when your lifestyle is starting to abide and to sit and to be, it should be harder and harder and harder to get up from that space. When you learn to ride with him, if you're, sitting, if you're thinking of yourself in the illustration as you're driving in a car, though the Christian life is supposed to be one where you are seated with Jesus in this beautiful automobile, and you cannot get to where you're going unless you stay seated with him. It's amazing that, that, that we can't do much in life when we stay seated. But the entire Christian life is one where you first have to sit down before you can walk, before you can get to the destination, before your works have any value. Sit down. Sit down. You want to add to that at all? Uh, no. Okay, so inheritance. What is your inheritance? Uh, the key point, if you want to keep, if you're looking in your own Bibles or phones or what have you, is, and I'm going to go fast because we want to land, is that in verse 7, it talks about grace and, and forgiveness and redemption. In verse 8 to 10, it talks about wisdom and understanding. In verse 13 and 14, eternal life in the Holy Spirit. Verse 19, it talks about our power and authority. And, and ultimately, what is our inheritance? Our inheritance is freedom. True freedom. That is the inheritance that we receive from the work of the cross. Freedom. He is so rich, in verse 7 it says, in kindness and grace that he purchased our freedom with the blood of his Son. And he forgave our sins. He has showered his kindness on us, verse 8, along with all wisdom and understanding. Wisdom and understanding. And I think she has something to say about that. But why? I ask again. Why is wisdom and understanding part of our inheritance? Why? It's simple. So we know what to do with what we have just inherited. That's why God is working 24-7 on the renewing of our mind, why it's so significant. Because it's, we need to think like him. For example, if you looked at the renewed mind, God will often start off with something in the natural. And so we can understand that, and then he'll build upon a concept. And it's to bring us into the dream of seemingly impossible things. So I'll give you an example. These are both kingdom laws, and we see them both throughout Scripture. The law of sowing and reaping, it's a kingdom law. If you plant corn, you'll harvest corn. And it's a great law. But then there's the law of blessing. It's an even greater law. Why? Because the law of sowing and reaping, it depends on us. It's based on us, what we have done. And yet it's still part of the kingdom truth. And then the law on blessing, it's based on him. It's based on what he has done. 
And that's where we really, we're talking about identity inheritance. Why we need that wisdom and understanding is because that inheritance is based on him. And he wants to take us into that understanding. We can't understand it if we're only thinking of the natural realm. So we'll start with the natural realm because he wants to connect. And then he'll build upon it. It's law of sowing and reaping. That's real. It's true. But there's a greater, the law of blessing. We did nothing to earn this inheritance, and yet we have it all. Inheritance comes from covenant, not contract. A contract is conditional based on what each party does. And so God is continually drawing us into understanding what his world is like. He's constantly bringing us into experience and encounters. Why? To shift how we think. To shift how we view reality. And so we can bring heaven down to earth. Our mindset is a huge deal. In Ephesians, in chapter, well, we'll read it. But anyway, we're going to read it later. Christian's going to. But we were seated in heavenly places. So I'm a preschool teacher, and I'm like, okay, that's a great, powerful scripture. How do I take that and translate it to a three-year-old mind? Stick figures. So on my whiteboard, I drew heaven. So it had clouds and sun, and there was Jesus sitting on his throne, and there was a chair right next to his. And so then I put myself on that little chair next to Jesus. And then I kind of drew like a squiggly line, like, this is heaven, and then go to the bottom of the whiteboard, and I draw green grass. And I draw really long legs down to the bottom. So I'm like, okay, I'm seated at rest, like Christian was saying, in heavenly places. And where's my mind? It's in heaven. Where's my legs? They're walking out what my mind is picking up on earth. And so they can still get shin, like skinned up, and they can come and get bruised. But I'm not going to be like, oh, I'm always just going to get bruised. Gosh, my life is so depressing. It's like, oh, wait, God. Here, I'm sitting next to you in heavenly places. What do you think about that? And it's so, it's the whole transformation of the mind is so that our lives on earth mirror what's happening in heavenly places. And while it's a kingdom concept, you can teach it to three-year-olds. It's taught you how. Um, so that whole thing when you hear like, oh, I'll walk by someone. And the Lord kind of flipped this. He's like, that's saying, oh, their head's in the clouds. They're kind of loopy. They don't really get it. The Lord's like, that's actually an awesome thing. Because then their head's with me. It's right here. It's easy. And it's like if you have a problem, if I'm down there, it's pretty far. Like, God, what do you think about that? If my mind's on earthly matters. But if my mind's on heavenly things, it's really close. To be like, hey, you want to think about that? Oh, okay. Yeah, got it. Um, in Jesus' name, be healed. You know, sort of like, so it's a lot easier to pick up what's happening in heaven when your mind's already there. So Paul, I love that. Um, he just, he painted that picture for us and we can teach ourselves, we can teach our kids and he's this whole time working to draw us into an understanding of what his world is like, which leads us into how inheritance transforms us. Yeah, good. Yeah, so what is inheritance point one? Point two is how inheritance transforms. In verse 17 and 18 it says, asking God, the glorious father of our Lord Jesus, to give you spiritual wisdom and insight so that you might grow in your knowledge of God. I pray, this is Paul praying for them, that your hearts will be flooded with light so that you can understand. It's like they couldn't understand until their hearts are flooded with light. I pray that your hearts will be flooded with light so that you can understand the confident hope he has given to those he called. His holy people who are his rich and glorious inheritance. His rich and glorious inheritance. So the beauty is... When you receive your inheritance, he receives his. Yeah, so good. 
Let that just shatter your mind for a second. God's inheritance is you receiving yours. And that's the way the kingdom works. Is every good gift returns with benefits. Every sacrifice, and that's the thing, is we talk about sacrifice in the realm of church life, and yet every single time I sacrifice, and by the way, it is brutally hard to sacrifice anything. Whether I'm sacrificing my sleep for one of my 15 kids, or if it's, if it's sacrificing Your sitting my, down position my time, from the couch. my money, my, my, my position on the couch. The sacrifice <laughs> is never easy. And as soon as I see the benefits of sacrifice, I have not once gone, that wasn't worth it. Not one single time. That's the great delusion, is that we think our sacrifice is just going to be a bummer for us. And the reality is in the kingdom, every sacrifice repays many times over. When our hearts are just doing it to get that repayment, it doesn't work. It only works when our hearts are willing to never receive anything back. And that's the heart of unconditional love. And at the same time, it doesn't work to share a message that's talking about sacrifice, sacrifice, it's all going to be terrible. Because it's not true. The truth is that everything about your inheritance, everything what God wants you to receive, everything he gave you, he gets it in return, you get things in return, you pour it out, it pours and comes back to you, and you don't have to worry about if it comes back to you in this life or the next because you're already living that eternal life now. The purpose of the eternal life isn't that later life. The purpose of the eternal life is that your life now has eternal value and everything that you do with your life now sows into realities and purposes that aren't diminished by the life and death of this planet. It's mind-blowing. I just want to read that to you one more time, those scriptures. Asking God, the glorious Father of our Lord Jesus, to give you spiritual wisdom and insight so that you might grow in knowledge of God. I pray that your hearts will be flooded with light so that you can understand the confident hope he's given to those he called his holy people who are his rich and glorious inheritance. You know, any type of inheritance is, is a benefit. Um, did, did any of you have family members that paid for college? Amen. Thank you. Yes. Uh, I... I uh, I think I got a year. I think I got a year of state school, maybe two. And then, and then I, I uh, took out a lot of student loans. And then, um, and, and then I joined. I got, yeah, my dad paid for a year in his motherland. That was, that was good. Oh, my, oh, my, my parents were super generous. But, um, you know, the, the economy, you know, that was, that was a rough, rough few years of my college days. And uh, I, I took out a bunch of student loans. You know who's, who's paying off a lot of them? Not all of them, but a lot of them? Her dad. The benefits of the family. I mean, it, it, is, it is seriously a reminder of me, uh, a reminder for me of why I married her. I'm just kidding. It's not why I married her. <laughs> I didn't know that was going to happen. I really, I had, no, I had no earthly idea. Their parents are, are, are super, um, they're, they're, you would never know. That the, the, the guy, well, he did manage the, the Office of Management and Budget in Washington. That was super intimidating when I realized his office was down the hall from Dick Cheney. But um, beyond that, it, it's, it's a continual reminder when, when I see a big chunk of my student loans paid off every month, the benefits of the family. And about inheritance, future inheritance being pulled into the present. Amen. That this was better theology. Ultimately, the father spoke to my father and was like, this will benefit them if you die, but
but it would really benefit them right now when they need it. And so I feel like this picture of the heart of the father where he's like, I have everything and everything I have is yours. And one day you will get the full measure. Mm -hmm. But if you can tap into it now, that's when you're going to fully live. That's right. So, so how do we use our inheritance? Sometimes there's like a stopgap. And, and just really briefly, we use our inheritance when we ask Holy Spirit. He's made things available. Why don't you try again just to ask him? Show me what this looks like. So you ask him. You ask him to show you the full benefits. And then allow him to bring those realities into your life. Ask, show, and allow. That's pretty basic. But at the same time, within that is this encounter reality. So Paul, I feel like, is super practical. And then he prays prayers. Like, I pray that your heart would be flooded with light. What is that? He's praying that they would have an encounter. A spiritual encounter with the living God. And he's not just satisfied that they would just know head knowledge and they would start to live it out in good, practical, sound ways. He's going to do that in the future chapters that we'll have in the next few weeks. You'll see some of the practicalities of just how to live a sound life in parents and a husband and wife and so forth and so on. But he never leaves that tension without the tension of, I'm praying that you would encounter the light. It's amazing. So inheritance transforms, and finally, number three, inheritance gives power. That's the realm of authority when you are seated with Jesus in the heavenly places. Now the question goes, is Jesus' power, his authority as King Jesus? The, the church that I grew up in, and maybe many of you, we put Jesus in this place. We all knew that technically, yes, we are, he died for us and we're seated with him in heavenly places. And if someone would ask me, what does that mean? I'd be like, well, you know, I'm there with him. He's my buddy. He loves me. I get to go be there with him someday. It's going to be awesome. And, and he never leaves me here. He's always with me. And those things are true. But there's, there's a realm that's, and there's inheritance in that that goes far beyond that he's with you. And yet, please don't diminish the reality of God with you and that he never leaves you. And, and in that, he says this, uh, verses 6 to 10 again. I, I, wanna, I want you to feel the, the momentum as we close of verses 6 to 10 of chapter 2. For he raised us from the dead along with Christ and seated, seated us with him in the heavenly realms because we are united with Jesus. So God can point to us in all future ages as examples of the incredible wealth of his grace and kindness towards us as shown in all he has done for us who are united with Christ Jesus. God saved you by his grace when you believed. And you can't take credit for this. It's a gift from God himself. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we've done, so none of us can boast about it at all. For we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. Doing the good things, walking the things out, only happens when you're seated with him. You need to understand that what he declares over you is that you are a masterpiece. You are an artwork that heaven raves about. Your identity is magnificent. And when you just start to receive that voice, 
The lying voice, the stranger's voice, the depressing voice, the voice of the world, the voice of the bad ant. Get silent by the voice of the good ant. The voice of the Father is, is singing over every single life here. You're his masterpiece. You're his artwork.